Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Jude Boudreaux. Jude is the founder of Upperline Financial, a financial planning firm in New Orleans that works primarily with Gen X professionals in their 30s and 40s. What's fascinating about Jude's practice is not only that he works with a much younger clientele than the typical financial advisor, but his unique pricing model, an annual retainer fee that's calculated as 1% of the client's income plus half a percent of the client's net worth, which makes it feasible for him to work with those younger clients and deliver holistic financial planning, even though they don't have any assets to manage and he's operating as a fee-only financial planner. And thanks to his unique model that's so well aligned to his target clientele, Jude has managed to grow his practice to capacity at more than 150 clients and $400,000 of annual revenue in only six years. In this episode, Jude shares not only the details of his unique business model, including how he handles billing when there's often no portfolio to bill from, but also his highly structured process for meeting with clients on a rotating basis three times a year, the kinds of planning issues he covers in those meetings to validate his fee structure, and what he did to fill the income gap while he was still growing his practice to the point that he could replace his prior salary. Jude also shares the exact marketing strategy he executed to get his 150 clients, built around using blogging, Twitter, and media interviews to get him up to the number one ranking Google result for fee-only financial planner in New Orleans. And now all of his prospective clients find their way to him online. And be certain to listen to the end, where Jude shares why it is that even though he successfully built a solo advisory practice to be very profitable, he's now looking to merge his firm into a larger advisory business by taking a hard look at his personal strengths, and where he wants to focus his own energies in the future. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Jude Brugero. Welcome, Jude Brugero, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I've been looking forward to this episode because I, you know, we've known each other going back a ways now, I think upwards of 10 years from the early days of FPA NextGen, back when it wasn't even FPA NextGen, it was just kind of NextGen and we, we had done it on its own and we were out at some of the early conferences. And, and I think at that time, both of us were, were kind of going through dynamics of being employees in advisory firms, trying to decide whether we might go out on our own at some point and what it would look like. And so I thought it'd be really cool now that you, you're well into this journey for quite a few years to come out, have you on the podcast and just share like what you do and what that path has been like. Yours was similar to mine. You spent some time in an insurance agency and in the independent broker dealer environment before you landed in an RIA. And so I'm, I'm excited just to have you on and, and tell some of that story and that journey that you've been through. Well, I'm glad to share it and talk about all of those parts. It's been interesting from, you know, mutual funds to insurance to being duly registered then starting your own deal. So it's it's been a long road, but it's been an interesting one. So maybe to, to start off, can you just talk to us a little bit about your advisory firm as it exists today? Like what what does that business look like? What, what do you do and who do you serve and and, uh, and where are you now? 
So I own Upperline Financial Planning. We're a fee-only firm based in New Orleans. We price on an income and net worth retainer. So it's a flat fee structure that we work under. I have a full-time financial planning resident who's a really bright young planner who just passed the CFP exam and did the courses through SMU and will be a full certified financial planner before too long here. And I have two staff members who are both our clients, interestingly enough. One is our office manager whose mom looking to transition back into the workforce as her kids started school again. And another one was a client who kind of followed their partner to New Orleans while the partner was going to medical school and was trying to figure out what her next pathway was going to be. And uh, working with us ended up being part of that journey for her. Very, very interesting transition. How many like clients do you serve, or what do you look at from that? Like I was, you know, off, we we often talk about AUM, but you run a a net worth and income retainer model, which I, I want to ask more about in a moment. But how many clients are there, or how do you how do you measure size of the firm? For the longest time, people would ask me that question at conferences, and I would say, I don't know, it's not my money, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. We have a hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty or so clients that. If you kind of took on the average, that family is young, professional family, their mid-30s, early 40s, good incomes, and maybe children, but a lot of moving parts. And so we work with them on a really broad flat fee that covers our work with them on you know, just cash flow planning, getting clear about their vision using George Kinder's three questions, all the way through doing retirement projections, talking about the investments and estate planning, education planning, all the things that you would normally think of within the box of financial planning. So you've got, but essentially it's kind of a largely Gen X young professional clientele. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And I know people always look for that AUM number and don't really have that. We, um, I'll say like our gross revenue this year should be about $400,000 on that 160 or so clients. Our average client is in that $3,500 a year range. On just a flat fee. Smallest one is a thousand, and our biggest one is about fourteen thousand. So, talk to us about that fee structure. So, you said net worth and income retainer. So, so what does that look like? Like, how do you how do you set that fee? How do you calculate that fee? We kind of rough it in simply based on a client's previous year's income and uh, based on a ballpark figure on their net worth. And I always say it's net worth excluding the value of any business interests that they have. So if you own a small shop or consulting practice, we're not billing you based on the value of that business. Or honestly, one I get a lot in New Orleans is rental properties because we're not advising about the business. If we are, that's a different engagement and we have a separate planning agreement for that. But really, we're just planning on the income that those businesses generate and using that income to plan the rest of their lives. So we exclude that from the calculation, but otherwise everything else is included from home equity to liquid assets and kind of all those other pieces. Do you do this formulaically? Like I'm going to charge you a certain percentage of your income and net worth, or do you just look at a client situation and try to judge kind of the rough estimate of income and net worth and just say like, okay, your fee's $4,000 and you just give them a number, like just your fee's $4,000. I've assessed your situation and here's what I charge. So what we tell people is the fee is roughly 1% of a client's income plus one half percent of their net worth, excluding the value of any businesses that they own. And I often say, like, we're not trying to get this down to the penny. 
my goal is to get a number that is reasonable for you in terms of the cost, you know, what you're going to spend. And for us, in terms of what we need to do to work with you, and also is reflective of the value that you're going to receive in working with us. So that's, you know, so that one plus a half percent is the guideline. And we've revised it down at times. Sometimes we revise it up because clients get a very complex situation, but it becomes our guideline for opening that conversation. And the big thing I believe about it is that it takes away the assets under management kind of conversation. So we're not saying, okay, you got to have a quarter million dollars for us to be able to bill on this and make it a profitable client or something like that. I have ER physicians who make $400,000 a year and who owe $500,000 in student loans. And so we build them a flat fee of about $4,000 a year and we'll help them save some money and set some money aside. But mostly we're talking about student loan planning. So in paying off debts. And so it allows us to not come in. I believe we sell a process and not a product. So we don't have any preconceived solutions when we come into the conversation. You want to talk about building a real estate portfolio? Great. Here's what you should think about going into that conversation. You really want to be debt-free? All right. Here's the pluses and minuses of that. So we just meet clients where they are, talk about what's happening, and then how do we think we can get them better reality? And so the fee then evolves over time because presumably their income is growing over time, particularly if they're Gen Xers and still upwardly mobile and their net worth is growing over time because hopefully they're saving and building net worth somehow, whether they're they're buying real estate, they're investing in their portfolio, or they're putting in their 401k or wherever it is. And so the the fee would, in theory, at least kind of drift higher over time as they're accumulating wealth and, and income. Yeah, that's the goal. And I often tell clients, outside of something drastic happening, we leave the fee level for three years and then we reevaluate it. I'm not too worried about, you know, how down to the penny that is. But I always say, if there's something major that happens, then we need to have a conversation. Because I've had clients, I had a client, very young client who's diagnosed with uh, stomach cancer. And so we stopped their billing immediately and continue to work with them to get through this very difficult stage in their life. We've had other clients who inherited large amounts of money. And we need to just kind of open up the conversation and say, all right, so now this is what the fee would be based on what we're now doing for you. Yeah, you, you have a liquidity event. You lump sum a whole bunch of net worth, the net worth income all at once. You've got these weird income distortions. Yeah, so that's not, I mean, that's real, but it's not going to be each and every year. Just like I, I met somebody once who lost a couple million dollars in a mine. And so he had all these active loss pass-throughs. And so he's like, well, my income has been zero for the last three years. Yeah, not really. Like it's still really two hundred thousand dollars, but you're not paying any taxes on it because you have this big loss. But so that's our guideline. Do you get clients that like? Well, I guess two questions. Do you explain to clients that that's the formula? Like, is it a guideline you explain to them, or is it just a guideline that that you use for yourself, but you still ultimately just tell them like your fee is two grand or your fee is four grand or whatever the number is? Like, do they do they know this is the guideline formula? We do tell them that, you know, here's here's roughly how we're calculating this. And I always kind of open that conversation with here's why we build this way. Fee-only firms, we didn't, a lot of them build either hourly or based on assets under management. And we didn't want to do that for, you know, and here's why. Hourly, we think, creates a conflict directly between us and clients because they don't call with certain kinds of questions. And this works better, as you know. We can have these little 
pieces that can move. But if we talk about it, there's big impact that that can have. So we want to be part of those conversations. We don't want there to be a barrier between us and talking. And assets under management is fine, but it creates a different kind of conflict where you want to go and start a business or buy a condo on the beach, and you're going to take money out of your portfolio to do that. That's great. But if we're building just based on your assets, we have to say, by the way, our fee is going to go down by X if you decide to make this decision. So there's no perfect model. I don't believe there's anything that is conflict-free. But for us, it was a way that was not built based on assets and it wasn't based on hours because I often add to that too. We're not good at tracking our time. So it's not the way we're built. We're not structured that way. So we're going to do a bunch of stuff and we're not going to bill you for it. And that's not a good way to run a business either. And so do you get clients that like haggle with you about this? You know, I, I mean, I'm just sort of imagining, right? You, once you've got this formula, particularly when there are ways that maybe you'll you have to adjust income up or down, right? Like, hey, my income last year was exceptionally high because of blank, but that's not normal. Or, or you have to point out your your income was exceptionally low last year, but that's not normal because you're you know writing off a carry forward loss of something. Do you get to points where you find yourself haggling on price trying to set this compared to, I mean, there is at least a certain simplicity to AUM. Like I manage it or I don't. And we can, and you know, there's a printed statement with a clear account balance. Uh, Like, do you, do you find that's a challenge or no, or like it is, but it's just manageable and you have the conversation and and you move on. Yeah. I I tell clients all the time, like we need, we're going to talk about important things in this space. So we're going to have to trust you and you're going to have to trust us if we talk about some of these things. So you tell me this is worth X. I'm not going to go and get an appraisal. We're just going to take your word for it, right? The And so it does come up at times where people want to you know, make a case for a different kind of a fee. But honestly, it doesn't come, happen that often. Mostly, it's either just something that is, you know, makes sense for them and they're comfortable with or... It's not, and then that's fine. That's not the right fit for us. I, I often talk about this with other people who are thinking about the retainer model. The biggest problem with it is that it's really discreet. Like it's really clear what you, what people are paying for you, and it's kind of ironic that that's a problem. They just it's been hidden and tucked into all sorts of other places before. But chances are it's less than um, you know. So I'll often ask that on the larger end, you throw out a number to somebody. And I'll say, oh, that's a big number. I'll say, good. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. I'll if you put another hour into this, I will too. Give me your statements, and let's just let's look at what you've been paying, and let's compare it. Uh, but I'm willing to bet you that mine is less. But the problem with it is that you know, no matter how much internally we know that a ton of feathers and a ton of bricks weigh the same, a ton of bricks always feels heavier, right? So. Same thing. If I know that 1% of a million dollars is $10,000, or I can write a check for $10,000, the writing check for $10,000 feels a lot heavier. So we just have to put it on the table, we acknowledge, you know, acknowledge that and take it for what it's worth. Now, what if the client actually does have assets? Like, Will you also manage them and charge them for it? Or it's just bundle on the fee, so you'll manage it, but you're not going to charge them because you already charge them on income and net worth? Yeah, so we our fee is inclusive, so we don't add on an extra asset management fee. You know, if, if we end up with going to some kind of specialty portfolio manager and 
that manager charges an extra 35 basis points to do a muni bond portfolio or something like that, then that's, that's just an add-on. But we don't charge more if it's through us or at Vanguard or in their 401k plan. We're very agnostic about where the money is, which I think is part of the, one of the good things about our model is that it doesn't require you to move anything to us. You, you want to keep it at E-Trade? Great. Here's our, here's what we think the portfolio should be. Okay. And then how do you actually bill this? Like, do you invoice them once a year? Do they cut a check? Do you like pull it from investment accounts if they have investment accounts? What, what does the billing process look like? Particularly since I'm like 150 or 160 clients, like that's a, it's a lot of bills. It's a lot of retainer bills to calculate and track and collect and just cash the checks and deposit them. So what does what the billing process look like in, in this kind of model? So a number of clients pay us monthly. So that is just, we take the annual fee, divide it by 12, and it gets billed monthly to them. Some clients prefer to pay in advance. And if we do Sorry, that, just really fast. If, if they do that monthly, like how do you process monthly fees? Like they just set up an automatic bill pay from their bank and it just sends you a check every month? Yeah, so I have five or six clients who do it that way. We use FreshBooks and it will generate invoice and accept credit card payments. So number of people simply pay by credit card online automatically. Some people like to handwrite a check and mail it to us. But for the most part, it's automatic payments by credit cards. There are a few people where we do the, they have a large enough portfolio and we're doing the management of it. We can take our flat fee, say it's $5,000 and just convert it to an approximate percentage and bill that against the portfolio on a quarterly basis, much like asset under management firms do. But our fee is discrete it's, and it's billed separately. So it's just kind of very distinct on what that is. And then some people prefer to just pay us annually. So they just write us a check and we take those as they come. Interesting. And so like, do you do these all at once at the end of the year if, if, you're, if you're in an annual process or is it kind of a rolling process like if you start with me in March, then I'm going to bill you every March kind of kind of structure. So there's always someone who's coming up for renewal every month. Right. It's the latter. So we, it's kind of when you sign up, say, great, here's your planning agreement, here's your invoice. And Lisa, who handles our billing, it will invoice them every year on the anniversary. So that's how we do it. And so because we're not having these big quarterly payments come through each and every quarter, like an AUM firm, it helps to normalize the revenue a little bit. It's pretty spread out. Okay. So just like you've got a process every month that you pull up some list and it's like, okay, here's the 27 clients that we're going to be invoicing and billing this month. And then you proceed through the month and then you've got another round of them next month. Yeah. So Lisa sets them up as automatically recurring bills in FreshBooks to her email address. So it actually just emails her an invoice so she then will take the PDF version of the invoice and send it to me and the clients and copy to them the link for them to pay online. Or if they want to send us a check, they'll just print it off and send us a check. Okay. That's, that's pretty straightforward. So if you're doing this kind of planning work for young professionals, what do you use for planning software? Or I guess even more broadly, like what do you do for them? Right? I feel like there's always this question anytime we talk about planning for younger clients and granted 
Gen X is not that young and maybe in the grand scheme of things, but relative to most advisors serving baby boomers, professionals in their mid thirties and forties are, are young folks. So what are you doing for them? Particularly if they may have no assets with you at all, what are you doing for them to earn, you know, $3,500 average fees? So we begin with a vision process using George Kinder's three questions. That's kind of bedrock of the work that we do. We don't work with clients if we don't know what success means. And for us, that comes out of that vision conversation. So we always begin there. From there, we talk about cash flow, which is a very big part of what we do. We use first step cash management to get that kind of cash flow paradigm going for clients and help them really start to understand their money and the way it's working for them. We'll do other things like track their net worth. Lisa updates what we refer to as a family map. Essentially, it's a large mind map that has all their financial components onto it. So we keep that up to date so they know where everything is all in one big page. We will do retirement projections for them. We talk about debt management strategies for cars, homes, educations, whatever is going on. We'll, we'll talk about planning from that standpoint. All the insurance components, life, health, disability, auto, is the coverage appropriate? Does the deductible make sense? Is it titled correctly? Look at education planning for their kids and ultimately all the way through kind of estate planning for them. Uh, what happens if something happens to either of you or both of you? And what do you want to have happen? So that's kind of the broad range of what we do. And we meet every four months with our clients to kind of continue on with that process. And we have in each of those four months, we have a distinct kind of set of what it is we're working on with clients, or what we want to update, whether it's all the insurance policies before hurricane season in New Orleans, or it's uh, the estate plan at the end of the year or the new year's goals, right? So we have, have it kind of broken out into a calendar. So we tend for you know, kind of for three months to be meeting with people and talking about the same types of things while they're on their cycle. Okay. So like the whole business basically has a cycle, uh, you know, first three months of the year, we're just going to be talking about tax planning with all of our clients. Next three months, we're just going to be talking about, you know, insurance reviews with all of our clients, et cetera, like that, that kind of structure all the way across the practice. That's exactly right. And it's broken down even by kind of client type. So we try to meet with say all of our entrepreneurs on what we call cycle two. So it's February, July, and uh, October. So by February, maybe they finally got the business financials done. So we know where they stand. In October, maybe the taxes are finally done from the previous year. So we can talk about that. We meet with all of our retired clients in November to make sure all the RMDs are set up. And if there's any Roth conversions, that all happens at the same time. So it creates this kind of nice seasonality for our business. And it creates these other times where Outside of new clients, we're hopefully not too, too busy and we can work on special projects. So, you know, we typically meet with clients January, February, March, and April would be one of those kind of off months. So it's for us, it's April, August, and December. So in April, it's kind of springtime, usually hit FPA retreats. August is the most miserable month in New Orleans. So it's an opportunity to get somewhere else. And then in December, uh, outside of Thanksgiving to, to Christmas, if case, unless there's some major tax thing that we haven't been planning for, clients, are, they're busy with other stuff. They're not calling all the time to do things. So it's just nice to have a little bit more capacity on the calendar there when the kids are out of school and other things are going on. So it's an interesting, like very structured format. So I guess like roughly is like 150 clients or so. So roughly 50 clients in each of three cycles, so like 
cycle one meets, I guess, whatever that comes out to be, January, May, and then in the fall, and cycle two is February and June and October. And so just if you're in cycle one, like, that's the deal. Everybody gets scheduled in January, everybody gets scheduled in May, everybody gets scheduled in September, and, and they and they know their deal. Yeah. One of uh, Dennis Mosley Williams was a guy I always loved to hear talk about planning. He always talked about you need to run it like a dentist practice. And, you know, you leave the dentist's office and you've got your appointment card for your next meeting. So we set those meetings four months in advance. So they know when they want to come, when, if they get the day and time that they like to come in for meetings and it's on the calendar, it's on my calendar, it's on their calendar. And if we need to move it, we can, but otherwise we at least know failing everything else in four months, we're going to get back together and we're going to talk about it. And do you literally schedule like the dentist practice? You know, they, they, you, you set the next meeting for four months out before they leave the current one. Absolutely. That's on the last item on every agenda, schedule a next meeting. So we'll book, you know, they like to meet at 8 a.m. on Tuesday or Thursday. So in which we've asked them their preferences. So it's on their family map. So we know what their preferences are. So we can say, all right, great. So it's February. Our next meeting will be in June. So here's here are the Tuesday, Thursday mornings. We can meet at 8 a.m. What would you like to do? And we put it down there. So what happens if they've got stuff they want to talk about and it's March and they're a cycle one. So they get, you know, January and May, but it's, but it's March. No, we, so we tell them that it's not to say that we can't talk until this point. It's more to make sure that we're actually going to get together and talk. We tell clients all the time, like we price this way. So you will call us and you will email us and you will let us know what's going on in your life so that we can be helpful. We can be a part of supporting you in living your life. We meet as often as is necessary. And a client who was the sole heir of his aunt's estate, and it was really complicated. And for them, we met every two weeks for several weeks to just make sure we continued to go through and help them with those things. I have other clients who are retirees and not much changes, and we kind of drag them in every four months. It's Again, it's not to make sure that we're not saying you can't come and have a conversation. We just want to make sure there is a way for us to have a scheduled conversation already set in advance. And if anything comes up, we want to be a part of that. We want you to call us. And so how many, I'm curious, how many clients you think you can service this way? Like, do you hit some limit here? Is it just matter? Like, as long as I can keep scheduling more client meetings, every four month schedules, we can just keep adding clients or, or like, do you feel like you're close to a wall? Cause I think for a lot of advisors, like uh, even with some staff support, 150, 160 clients, it's a lot of clients. Yeah, we're we're pretty much at capacity right now. It's I couldn't imagine adding another 10 to what we're doing, which is always kind of the interesting thing about growing a practice. You know, you're kind of begging for people to call and want to explore becoming a client for a very long, you know, with the early years of your practice. And then you get to this point where it's finally big enough to generate that many referrals and it's kind of like, okay, great. Well, we can meet with you in two and a half months and maybe we'll have an opportunity there. It's been interesting to transition to that space of where we're we're approaching being full and that there's not a lot more that we could really add on. So you did mention that you've got a financial planning, like associate support person that you called her a, a financial planning resident. So is that someone that can take over clients over time and, and become a additional person to support if you want to continue to grow? Yeah, absolutely. I'm very fortunate that I've got, I was very lucky in the hiring process and got referred to a wonderful uh, career changer. Very, I mean, she's 26, so it's a very young career changer. 
but somebody who took CFP courses on their own and really became interested in the industry and has so much capacity and potential. And so as much as she's able to bring in new people on her own, she will be able to do that. And we can either feed her kind of enough to grow her own book of business. I hate that term, by the way, but to grow her own client base or to bring in somebody else who is another advisor who, you know, looking to start grow their own or change careers or something else. And we could absolutely downline to fill up somebody else. And if they started with us and have kind of a similar book, a similar client base over another five or six years. So that also makes me curious though, like where did, where did 150 clients come from? Cause again, like that's a, it's a good sized number. A lot of people spend a very long time trying to get there. I, we've known each other for more than 10 years. You were not running upper line when I knew you first. So you, you've, you've gotten to 150 clients in a, in a fairly finite time period. So like, wh- what do you do to market and get clients like this? You know, Upper Line has been around for six and a half years. So that's how long. And we didn't leave with a bunch of clients. I left, you know, I was director of planning for a small wealth management firm. And what I wanted to do was different, but I also didn't feel like it was the way to honor the people that I worked with for many years that they go and attack that client base. So I left with one client and it was somebody that they wanted to fire anyway. So I left with them and started with one client and everybody else has been incoming traffic. So we, we never call, I hated at Mass Mutual, the asking for referrals and calling people to come in and have meetings and try to, you know, try to jump out of the bushes at somebody and convince them they needed to talk about their financial life. So I decided that we wouldn't market that way. We would market based on our intellectual, like our ability and try to market our knowledge. So I started writing and I started a blog with the website and published Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday for quite a while at the beginning of the practice, which I could never keep up that schedule now. But, you know, it, I had five or six clients. So it was there's plenty of time to write when there's not too many people to serve. And that helps to grow our, again, it's something that people could share on their social media profile, something where people could come and learn about us without having to commit to anything. And ultimately that grew along with getting some, you know, press quotations and things to help get links back to the website so that when people were searching for a financial planner or a fee only financial planner, like we were, that they would find us. And then if they came to the website and they could learn more about us and make a decision if they thought we might be a good fit or not. And that's where everybody's come from. Interesting. So, I mean, they, you, you blogged, you got black links, backlinks help your SEO people type financial planner, New Orleans, and, and you come up and that's where your clients came from. Yeah, that's it. The goal at first was to be the number one result for the search fee only financial planner, New Orleans, which is a very specific search term, but it helps to be really specific at the beginning. So creating enough content to be found and then getting enough links back to the website to start to rise in the search rankings led to us being in that place. And then getting some other press has led to us kind of having a very solid place in that space now. So when when you were blogging three times a week on on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, what like what are you writing about? What do you write that gets clients or gets media to contact you so you get clients? Like what what were you writing about? 
yeah, I, I've talked with Autumn, our planning resident, about this. And quite literally, it was about anything. It was not, you don't, you have to get past at the beginning, I think, this idea that what you're writing is some big, you know, we're really going to clear up for people what a backdoor Roth IRA means. That's not the objective here. We want something that is digestible and easy to understand. And if we're lucky, it includes some favorable search words for us too. So that was the goal at the beginning, was just to start to develop content. And the thing about doing it is that you never know what's going to be really liked and shared. And it's probably not what you thought was going to be. So I had a throwaway piece once about something very simple. And it got liked and shared more than anything I've ever written. And it was something that I published at like 1150 at night because I didn't want to not publish something on Thursday. So you don't know. You just have to keep putting things out there. And you have to be willing to be committed to the process to see what works out there. I think one important thing, if writing is part of your strategy, is to separate thinking and doing. You don't want to sit down with this really broad thing of, okay, what am I going to write about today? Because unless there's something in the news, you're kind of screwed at that point. You need to have different times where you're just brainstorming. What are things that I would want to write about? And kind of along the lines of our local thing, I think the more local, the better. If there's things going around about local property taxes, write about that. Even if it's very simple, explain to people what a mill is and they'd be really grateful for it. You know, so start with those kinds of things and get a list of things that you might want to write about so that when it's time to sit down and write something, it's not, what do I write about? It's here's a list, pick one and then write about it because you're operating a very different part of your brain at that point. So I think you really want to be deliberate about how you go about doing that. I did a series early on about financial rules of thumb and it was every financial rule of thumb I could think of and kind of built out a financial rules of thumb page and then started to write about each one of those, you know, about a hundred minus your age for stocks or, you know, 10 times your income for life insurance, all those kinds of things. And just kind of gave my perspective on, I think this works. I think this doesn't, here's my criticism of it, et cetera. And it was a great way. There's, there's still some on there on that list that I haven't written about. So if I ever needed to go and write a blog post, I could always go grab one of those and write about it and have a new thing done. Yeah, I, I actually do something very similar in, in that, that I love the way you put it, like separating the, the thinking part from the doing part when you're thinking about creating content or, or when you're, when you're working towards creating content. So I, I keep a list of article ideas as well. It's, it's simple. I keep it in Evernote so that I can pull it up wherever I am on whatever device I've got handy. And so if I'm, out and about or doing something or for me a lot, like I'm out at a conference and I'm in a conversation with someone. I'm like, I, I actually, I should write something about this. Like, this is an interesting discussion. I, I should, I should write about it. I'll pull out my phone. I'll open up the Evernote note. I'll jot down a little note of, Hey, at some point, write an article about such and such. And, and what that means is whenever it is, I actually need to do some writing because I've marked up a day and said, okay, today's the day I'm going to get some writing done. I sit down on my computer. I open up Evernote. It automatically syncs. I look at my list of blog ideas and I've got a giant list of blog ideas because I've been scribbling them down in the, in the proverbial margins for the past couple of days and weeks. And, and so I have a, even as much as I write, I still have an article list that is literally well over 200 topic ideas long of just, Almost all of it is things that come up in conversation that if I ever have the conversation more than once, I'm like, okay, I, that's probably something someone wants to hear about. If I have it with a, the same conversation with someone five times uh, or five different people, then I 
escalate the likelihood that I'm going to write about it because it means a lot of people are asking about it. And, and it's that whole separation of thinking about ideas which don't necessarily come to you at the moment you're sitting in front of the computer. So don't burden yourself with trying to come up the idea when you sit down to write. Jot down the ideas when they come to you, write them when it's time, and, and you'll have a list wait, ready and waiting for you. In Evernote, I actually have a I have an Evernote notebook called Blog Fodder. And so I email myself things from there or I clip articles from the web that are there. So now like you just like you illustrated, when it's time to write, I go look at that and pick out what's got my interest today and I start to work on something. And so when you were doing your writing early on, were you getting prospects from the articles, like, you know, you, you wrote and explained something about local property tax dynamics in New Orleans and, and you got clients off of that? Or was the idea just, I want to keep a steady flow of content so my website is live and active, but at the end of the day, I'm pretty much going for fee-only financial planner New Orleans as the primary way that I, I get people in. Because even if there's only 50 people a year who type that, if I close half of them, I'm going to get two clients a month all year long just off of that one, one keyword. You kind of broke down the numbers there pretty approximately right. That's That was the goal, was just to get that search term. And part of it was having enough content on the site to be found. So that's where the discipline of writing came in for me. So I would write about anything that came up that caught my interest. And sure, I would try to share them through social channel, channels. I was really active on Twitter. Still am to a certain extent. But... It was great for meeting press and getting quotes. It was not, I've gotten one client from Twitter. So it wasn't great for finding clients. But again, I still believe in getting those things, sharing them, and ultimately trying to get links back to your sites through social channels. But yeah, the idea is if enough people were searching for a fee-only planner, and if I could meet with three of them a month, then one of them would decide to become a client. And if I get 12 clients a year, I could build out my business over the course of 10 years. And so that was that was the framework. Now, it took six years to do it. Uh, so it happened a lot faster than I thought, because it, I think it's ultimately kind of the compounding effect of referrals that happens as your client base grows to a certain extent. You know, if you get 20% of your clients giving you a referral and you have 20 clients, that's still four people a year. So you got to have more than four conversations a year. And now that we're at 150, and if I get 30 of those, that would be way more than enough to grow the business. I just can't possibly serve another 15 new clients. So, so now you have to figure out that challenge. That's actually an interesting point that you made about like a plan to get one client a month for through the year and you get 12 clients a year. And if you do that for 10 years, you get to your 120 plus clients and, and the income adds up pretty well. And, and I, I kind of get the math for that, except I feel like for a lot of people, like a 10 year build is a, is a long build. I mean, even a, even a six year build is a long build. Like if you're coming out of the gate saying, okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping cause you know, who knows when you're getting started, but like I, okay, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to get a couple thousand dollars per client and I'm only going to get one client a month. So like if this goes well, I'll have 30 something thousand dollars of gross revenue in year one. I won't even get to a hundred thousand dollars of gross revenue until year three. And then I got business expenses on top of that. And it, and it takes even longer to get to you know net numbers that are up at that level. So was that okay with you? Was that the plan? Did that scare you? Was that like a goal, a hurdle goal to beat? Like, how, how do you look at that kind of slow, long-term building process to get back to a number, an income level from 
particularly given what you can earn as a salary by just working in an advisory firm? It is it is a longer path. It is terrifying. It's even if you think you know the numbers, it takes longer than you think. I was told by Randy Rashi, who's a friend of mine, who's one of the very early fee-only planners who build on a flat fee. And he told me, he's like, yeah, it'll take you three years to make what you made before you left your job. And I remember telling him, like, Randy, I've run the numbers. Like, there's no way it's going to take me three years to make that much. It's like, yeah, it's going to take you three years. And sure enough, it did. It took me about three years to get back to my previous salary at, at the wealth management firm. So it's, you know, you can either embrace it or fight against it but you need to have a plan to get to that point. Some of it, the universe will help with. I stumbled into a job teaching part-time at Loyola University in New Orleans. I've seen a similar phenomenon. We actually did an article on the on the site a couple of years ago because I just I watched that dynamic uh, unfold for a bunch of advisors one after another that it, it takes three years. I literally just call it the income gap. And the income gap is the gap between when you start your firm and when you actually – it's like the salary you earned before you started your firm and when you get back to the point where you make as much as you did before you walked away from that salary. And I find for so many advisors, it seems to come in right around three years. That 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 seems to be the number. And, and, and the important part to remember from that is like for better or worse, it's, it's not about – the cost of starting an advisory firm that gets most people in trouble because relative to most industries, it's actually pretty cheap to start an advisory firm. I mean, I know a lot of people that have done it on less than $10,000. We actually have an article up on the site about it. Some advisors that have done that. What buries you is your personal bills and your ability to pay your own expenses because you're used to that salary lifestyle and and you've got to build back to it, which means either A, you need to build up some cash reserves for yourself, or B, you need to find some filler income streams. So, you know, the the in vogue term now seems to be a side hustle. You need to have some hustle you do on the side to pick up some extra dollars to try to fill in the income gap until you eventually accumulate enough clients that the recurring revenue gets you back to the place that you were originally. I love the the way you frame that, because I think it's absolutely that case. For me, I stumbled into an opportunity to teach part-time at my local university. They needed somebody to teach a music finance class. And I had a background in the music industry a little bit. So quickly studied up on it and went in and kind of dove in and made a few thousand dollars a year or a semester teaching that class. And then they asked me to do it again. And then the College of Business asked me to teach personal finance. So... There were there was a semester I was teaching three classes. And so, you know, that adds up. Now it takes time, which is what you're sacrificing. But again, if you only have a limited number of clients, there's only so much time you can possibly spend servicing those people. So you're going to have to find a way to blend in your time there at some point. But that made a difference as well as my wife had a really great job. Karen had a really well-paying job that could cover our living expenses just on her income. So as long as that was the case, there wasn't a lot of pressure in the early on for me to generate like a financial return off of my practice. We knew it was a longer term build and that was what we were, we had together made that decision. That was what we were working on and that was where we were headed. And thankfully that grew enough to where she then, you know, two years ago, we have Charlie, our son, and she's able to leave her job and, you know, have our child be a stay at home mom, kind of reboot her career because we now have enough income on my side of the ledger to make up for that difference. 
Very cool. So I, I'm curious, then take us back. Like, How did you get started down this whole path in the first place? I mean, did you come from a, a family of financial advisors and, and like this was destiny for you to come into the financial services business? What, what was your path? So I grew up in a little town about an hour south of New Orleans. It's a very small town, about 2,000 people called Lockport. It's, I often say it's not the end of the world, but you can see it. It was a lovely place to grow up, and I'm very proud of being a Louisianian most of the time. But it wasn't, there wasn't affluence around me. You know, growing up, my dad sold cars, my mom cleaned houses, and I saw the way they struggled to get through and be able to do the things that they did for us as a family. So going to college, I was very fortunate. I had a full scholarship to Loyola University in New Orleans. And so going to college, I would to learn about, I wanted to learn about money. I didn't want it to be that difficult. I didn't have like this big aspiration of what it was I wanted to do. Like I never wanted to be an astronaut or a baseball player or something like that. I just wanted to be successful. I wanted to have enough financial ability to not struggle the way my family had. So that led to starting a career in business school and then ultimately to the finance courses. And while I was there, I took a course called Personal Financial Planning for Professional Planners that was taught by Dr. Dalton, who was wrote the Dalton publications, Dalton Review, essentially the uh, CFP prep books. He was one of the very early people who created those kind of prep materials. So I was able to take this class from Dr. Dalton and it was a revelation. It was great. It was like, I can work with people and do this numbers thing that I like and get paid well. Like, this is amazing. I can't wait to do this. So that was when I knew what I wanted to do. But I was also pretty sure that I couldn't do it right out of college. So I had heard, I was going to move to Colorado, heard great things about Janus Mutual Funds. And so moved to Colorado and kind of bombarded the recruiting folks there. So when I had my first interview at Janus, I sat down with the recruiting manager. She's like, why do I have so many copies of your resume? I kept coming by here and I'll drop off one and see if I have a conversation. And I would email the, the recruiting box and I, this is where I want to work. So I was able to break in that way and get in to um, get in there. Had a not glamorous job at all on the phones there, but it was a start. And I got a couple of securities licenses and I got it way into the business which was right, it was in September of 2000. So like right as the tech bubble is starting to really burst around all of us, I started at a high growth tech mutual fund family, right? Great experience. I learned a lot from it. And ultimately those securities licenses are what got me a job when I moved back to New Orleans. The local mass mutual office had been told they needed to hire a compliance officer. And so they were looking for somebody who had some securities industry experience and who wanted to work in compliance. So I had a couple licenses and they liked me. So I uh, got my Series 7 and Series 24. In addition to the 6 and 63, I had a Janus and started to work there. I really am not suited for doing compliance work. I'm not, it's not a good fit for who I am. But it was a wonderful window into a bunch of other planners' practices on how they went about doing things. And so I got to really see for a while how certain people did things and could say, oh, I like that. I would want to do that. Or, I would never want to do it that way. The office ended up being low on their recruiting numbers. So they pushed me to become a producer. So I was a producer for six or seven months as I failed miserably at that whole business. The general agent kind of took pity on me and said, look, I like you. I know you're smart. If you run the training classes on Monday and Friday mornings, I'll pay you $1,000 a month. I said, okay, I'll take it. 
And they said there was during that time, Mass Mutual had rolled out too. They said, look, we'll pay now for staff. If they want to go get a professional designation, we'll pay for the staff to do it too. So I fell into that program. So they would reimburse me for my CFP materials. And so I found the next CFP exam was uh, seven months out. So uh, backing out to that date, I had five and a half months to go through the courses. So I did one course every month with the American College self-study and do a course, get reimbursed, send in my reimbursement, buy the next materials, have three weeks, study, take the next exam and go through. I did that, passed the comprehensive exam and kept on in different kind of staff positions at Mass Mutual for a while. It was really short and condensed. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as a way for anybody to go about doing that. Um, but I did get through it pretty quickly. Ended up as they fired the general agent at the, who was there at the time later on in my career, brought in somebody else who promptly became very ill unexpectedly. And so Mass Mutual came to me and said, all right, this isn't what we wanted to have happen, but you have the licenses. Can you be the agency supervisory officer while we figure out what's going on? And I said, okay, that wasn't really what I, that's not what I've set out here to do, but I need to pay for my wedding, so I'll do it. So I did that for almost a year. Yeah, it, it was not my favorite part of my career by any stretch, but I did it. And one of the Mass Mutual reps was leaving to start his own thing. And he was going to another broker dealer and said, I want to try this wealth management thing. Do you want to come and be in-house and I'll pay you a salary. So I did that. And for five years, I was kind of director of financial planning for this wealth management firm that he and I created. So that was built on kind of this assets under management model. You know, we'll build 1% and get to $100 million and everything will be great. So that was what we tried to do. And we converted his client base. And ultimately, the idea was one day, this will be yours. He's 30 years older than I was. But the longer we did it, the more it became apparent that I didn't really believe in billing everybody just based on assets. I wanted to be fee only, and that was never going to happen. And the second thing was that he wasn't ready for his own retirement. So no matter how much I ultimately paid for that business, he was never going to financially be able to retire on that number. So I had already started the thinking process. I probably need to do my own thing. So looked into what does it take to file an RIA do everything along those lines. And, you know, we're just about ready to do that when we found out that we were pregnant for our first child. So uh, Karen and I had a conversation and we kind of backed it up and said, okay, well, let's wait until we get closer to our child is born. And then you'll kind of be stay at home dad for a while. So for the first 13 months of Lucy's life, I would stay at home dad along with starting the RIA and writing and everything else. So it was a way for us to save on expenses and make it all work. And I'm so thankful for that time. I have a relationship with her that we really understand each other in this wonderful way. And I think it's because we had that time together early on that it still carries with us to this day. And without starting my business, I would have never had that opportunity to do that. But I started Upper Line, you know, working, meeting people at their homes, at coffee shops, ultimately at co-working space. And then that Loyola, where I was teaching, there was kind of an adjunct faculty office. So I started using that as my office space and eventually, you know, opened my own space a few years ago, which was a big financial leap, but it's made a ton of difference. So it was the right place at the right time. It's right in my neighborhood. So it's four block walk from my house to my office. It's been perfect. So clients don't drive downtown to go and park in the high rise building. They come down to our office in the neighborhood. And it's very easy to get around and there's a coffee shop in the building and it's just a nice 
environment. And I, I feel very fortunate for how it's all come together and how it's worked out. There's a lot of places that could have gone off the rails and it's just worked just right. I think it's striking that for so many people, they try to figure out when to, when to make the transition. And, you know, I, I always feel like there, you virtually never really find a good time. Like there, there's, there's rarely ever a good time to say like, I think next week I'm going to stop getting my salary. That would be awesome. And I'm going to go out on my own and have an income of zero. Like there's never really a good time. And it just, it, it strikes me that your transition kind of epitomizes it. Like, yeah, we found out we're pregnant. So, hey, let's make lemons into lemonade. So at least while I'm changing and have no salary and no job duties, I'll have time to be with my newborn and grow the business. So let's go. Like, it's just, that's a really cool transition or way, way to way to handle what I think for a lot of people would have been a very hard transition or like a, a reason not to make the leap knowing that a new baby was coming. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of times where this seemed like this seemed like this was a really dumb idea, right? So you just have to believe in what you're doing, manage, watch your cash flow real well, and do everything you can to make sure that it works, which, you know, and, and you can do everything right and have it not work. I often tell that to clients. I think that's the, the tragic thing of financial planning is you can make all of the right decisions and still have this not work out for you. And that's the same thing with starting a business. There are no guarantees in this life. So we've got to do everything you can to make it work and be willing to take your shot and realize when you're going to be willing to place your bet and go for it. So, you know, you mentioned the, the, the office setup that you have now. So is all of your team there with you in the office and, and like clients come in to see all of you or what, what is it, what does it look like for how you work with your team and how your clients work with your team? I often refer to our office as our home office. It is it's set up much more like a home than what you would think of as kind of a financial planning office. The main place we meet with people is a, it's a sofa, two chairs, a coffee table, and there's a TV kind of mounted on the screen with an Apple TV attached to it so I can bounce my laptop screen over there if we need to. But I wanted our office to be a place where we have people come to have a comfortable environment to have important conversations. And not a place that we build barriers between us and clients with marble tables and fancy things. So we, that's where we started from. So clients come into the office and it's myself, Amanda, who runs our office and Autumn, who is our planning resident. We, Lisa was in New Orleans and she moved with her husband and he finished medical school to Michigan. And she works for us remotely from Michigan. But we all have the ability to work wherever we are. And, you know, for... I work in Chicago for about a week a month, and Autumn's husband is in Tulsa now. So over the last week, we've had four team members in four different states, but we can still collaborate and do all the things that we would normally do to have web meetings with clients, to collaborate between the group of us, and to do the things that we need to do. I think part of that is having good staff and knowing that I can empower them to say, here's, my, here's what I need to get done or need you to do and let them go and do it. I think it's also one of the benefits of being kind of a Colby quick start personality that I don't, I'm not a micromanager. And so we've got a client event coming up and I've told Amanda, like, here's what's, here's what I think is important. Everything else you decide. And she'll often try to come back to me and like, do you want to talk about menus or this thing? I'm like, Nope, I don't. This is not really my interest. I don't think I'm going to make any better decisions than you will. So you go decide what it is. And you go for it. 
So that flexibility and ability, I think, is hopefully generates some loyalty within the team. But I think it just we're if we're working with clients to live the life that we want to help support them live the life they want to live, we should be really diligent about making sure we do that with our team members too. So however we can work to facilitate that is only smart and should only provide us financial dividends and returns in the long run with satisfied clients and happy employees. So I'm a very big believer in that. Karen, my wife's background is in org development and talent management. And one of her big things that she would say is that you can't motivate employees. You can only demotivate them. So we just do our best to stay out of the way. And if it's not important, we don't make a big deal out of it. Here's what's important. Here's what you got to do. You figure out how to make it work. As long as those things happen, everybody's good. Yeah, Mark Tabergian has this fantastic saying that you can't motivate. Your job is not to motivate people. It's to create an environment where motivated people will flourish. And it's kind of that recognition. Like you, you can't force someone to be motivated, but you can either create an environment where a motivated person succeeds or you can screw up their environment and demotivate them. It, it's always been a very powerful message to me and, and one that I still think about regularly and working with our team as well and on my businesses of, of like, I want to find good people. And then you have to actually make sure you get out of their way and let them do what they're, what they're good at, which I'll admit even as a, as a business owner, like that's hard for me sometimes because I, I, I want to muck around and everything because that's how I built my business. And, and just remembering, like, if you've got good people, get out of their way and let them be good. And if you don't have good people, then stop trying to remediate them. Just find good people. Yeah, absolutely. The time I spent within the Entrepreneurs Organization, they one of our speakers said something that really stuck with me. He said, I've never felt, I've never had a conversation with an employ, employer where they fired somebody and they said, oh, we fired that person too soon. Usually it's been oh, we let that drag on for six months and it's not the right fit. And honestly, we're not helping that person either, right? We're not helping them live their best life. We all know that this isn't working on some level. So why do we keep going on like this? Why don't we just acknowledge that and move forward? So that's, thankfully, I've never had to do that. We've been very fortunate finding people who are good fits from the beginning. But I think that if we needed to, we would let somebody go because we would want to help them find what works for them and make sure that you know, I have a commitment to 150 families, so I can't have things that are not working really well. Now, you you mentioned that you're going back and forth to Chicago a week a month. So what what's driving that? Like, did you, in the process of fee-only financial planner New Orleans searches, you, you unwittingly ended out with some Chicago clients as well? Or how, what's going on there? I've often thought, though, based on how poor local search is with other firms, like I should just build websites for other cities and then grow the ranking and then sell them to fee-only firms because I think there's so much opportunity out there. The But no, I my wife is from the north side of Chicago. So we have family and kind of a, some clients there. But we're also in the process of merging Upper Line with the planning center. So we'll be part of the planning center later this year. For us, it was we've grown to a place where we kind of hit that ceiling of complexity. And either I was going to need to borrow some money and hire a bunch more staff and grow the local office to be able to try to do some other things and do more portfolio management, maybe hire a CPA to do tax prep and do some other things. Or I could merge in with people that I've known for years that I really trust implicitly and allow me to leverage off of their systems and focus back on what I really want to be doing, which is 
honestly, I like being an owner and I like a lot of being an entrepreneur, but I don't like running my business and nor am I particularly good at it. So if I can have people who are doing portfolio management and trading, as well as paying the bills and you know, dealing with our health insurance, all of those things that I'm not good at, and I can just focus my efforts and working on with clients, then I think that's a good situation for everybody. So over the last 18 months, we've been exploring this merger with the planning center. And part of my role and responsibility there is I spend a week a month in Chicago. And we also do spend most of the summer in Chicago as well. We'll be subletting a place north of Chicago for the summer. And my wife and kids get to be near grandparents and cousins. And we get to get out of the summer heat in New Orleans. And so rather than being three weeks in New Orleans, one week in Chicago for the summer, it's kind of the opposite. It's three weeks in Chicago and one week in New Orleans. And with that, I'll have responsibilities for the planning center office in Chicago as well. So I'm curious how, you, you know, having spent six plus years building independently on your own, like how do you, how do you cross the line to not be totally independent after you've done it for six years and it was, and it was working so well and growing so well? That was kind of my wife's question too when we started talking about it. You know, she's like, you, you know, you worked so hard to do this and you always wanted to be your own boss. And now we're finally at a place where financially, like it's, it's working. And why are you going to go and merge now? Why, why do you want to do this? So it was, I think in some way, it, there's a number of things that go into that, that calculus. Part of it is, I think, to a certain extent, de-risking the portfolio. You know, I can make more money on my own than I can as a partner of a bigger firm. But I get some additional backup if I'm part of a firm. So kind of like we talk about clients, reduce the equity allocation, we reduce the downside and the upside. It's kind of that trade-off for me. I get to layer off some of the things that I don't like to do to really talented people that do like to do those things. I get to, I think, broaden the service model for my clients. The planning center does portfolio management in-house that we don't do. So we get to do more of that for clients. And I think in a really effective way, they own a CPA firm. So we get to do taxes in-house, which is the biggest thing I get asked for that I don't do. So that we get to do that in-house, I think is a really big plus for us. And not just the ability to do taxes, but to have a CPA on staff who we can have a conversation, you know, let's fire up and do a tax projection for this client mid-year and see where do we stand or what's the tax consequences of this possible transaction and have that expertise on staff is a big, it's a big luxury, honestly, with them planning for. So all those things plus to do with people that I essentially copied their business model. So I am, you know, it's very seamless transition for our clients. I think it's a better circumstance for our clients if I get run over by a bus than it was before. Because there are other people there that can help take care of them. And not to mention, if I want to take a vacation, I could be a lot more offline than I could have been just on my own. And for me, you know, as much as I want to keep growing a business, I don't want to really run a business. I don't see myself as being that person. What gets me excited every day is working with my clients and not, you know, how are we going to optimize cash flow? So I am, I'm very, I think it'll be a very positive thing to offload some of those responsibilities. And then hopefully for the administrative things that I do end up doing there, it'll be more of the things that I like to do around the marketing side, around the web and search. And if I can continue to grow that, then we can see how it benefits everybody. And truly long-term, it's my vision. I'd love to see the planning center as a national, national brand. 
And can we take something, a process that looks enough, similar enough with the same values across enough people and have offices around the country so that we can help with do this more and do this in a more profitable and sequential way, but also you know, help with some of the succession planning issue that is so prevalent within our industry of not planners who haven't necessarily planned for their own retirement. So I think we can bring in these young planners, work with them for a couple of years where they've got a really great talent base. And now you, know, you want to go live in you know XYZ place? Well, great. Here's somebody who's looking to retire. So we can roll that business into ours. You go and work with those clients and, and then we're off and running. We keep the process going. So Marty Kurtz often talks about the vision of being, you know, 50 years from now, in an ideal situation, we have new generations of planners talking to new generations of clients, but ultimately it's about the same money. And I want to see if we can make that happen. We'll make sure we put a link in the show notes out to the planning center. So if anyone's listening and they're running a net worth and retainer model and, and, and want to start a new city, we'll uh, we'll give them an opportunity to to get in touch and find their way. And the reminder for everyone, if you want show notes, you know, we'll have links to Jude's firm as well. If you want to see a little bit more about what he's doing and some of the other businesses we've talked about here, that's all at kitsis.com slash 22, since this is episode 22. So www.kitsis.com slash 22. So I think it's interesting and, and worth pointing out when we look at this merger that you're going through that like it is a merger. It's not as though you're selling and taking your check and dropping Mike or selling and taking a check and then just leasing yourself back as an employee. I mean, you, you I think you'd said you, you will be a, a partner and an owner in the new entity. It's just kind of this difference between being a hundred percent owner in your business versus being a partial owner in a larger business. So like, it's not as though you're changing your business ownership nature. You're just changing the fact that it's not going to be solely you and that you're going to get some other people that bring some other resources to, ta- to the table as part of the business? is I mean, is that how you would think about it? Is that how you look at it? Yeah, it's definitely. It's, you know, I am, I had offers from broker-dealers and stuff for seven-figure checks and those kinds of things. But it would have been compromising my values as what I believe is important in the planner-client relationship. And then I'm no longer an owner. And it's important for me to have some control of my future destiny. It just kind of got to the point where I believe what we can do together is bigger than what we can do apart. I think it's that, and you know, I think it's that case for me and the other partners. I think it's bigger for what the team can do. I think it gives them more opportunities. I think it's bigger for uh, our clients in terms of what we can do for them. So I really think it's the right decision for all of those different levels. So because that's the case, then we're moving forward. And so how did you find them in the first place? Like, how do, how do you make the decision to the planning center versus any number of other firms out there? I mean, do you, you know, put out like merger, merger availability, bidders inquire within? Or, or how, do you, how did you find or decide that you wanted to do this with the planning center in particular as opposed to any, uh, any number of other advisory firms that would probably be interested in having someone like you involved with their firm? You know, for me, it's just a matter of trust. I've known Eric Keyes for years, and he's one of my very closest friends. Uh, the night, you know, our daughter was very sick years ago, and the night she was diagnosed, he's 
literally the first person that I called in the middle of the night. So there's very little to, you know, little that you can do that I think can kind of offset that kind of level of trust going into a situation. That and that we've committed to taking a very deliberate approach about this. We've been talking about this and trying this on for 18 months. It was nothing that, you know, came very quickly or was any kind of rushed decision. So that's what it was. We didn't go out necessarily seeking a merger partner. It kind of started to percolate for me when a local broker dealer had, you know, kind of reached out to me through a channel about if this is your revenue, then here's the offer kind of a thing. So it did certainly get the idea going, but then Eric had called with, it's like, hey, would you want to explore this too, based on what we're doing in Chicago? And I know you're interested in Chicago too, and you've got clients there. It just grew to saying, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Let's see if it really does kind of come together, fits together. And so I've been really pleased with how it's worked out so far. So I'm curious, as someone that's gone through this, you started in the industry straight out of college. You've gone out, you've built your own advisory firm. What advice would you give to young advisors that are looking to become a financial planner today and start a firm? Or maybe even someone that's been in the industry for a while, but is trying to decide, like, is the kind of transition you made right for me as well? So I think the first thing is make sure your numbers work. You know, with every new business, most of them fail because they were undercapitalized. Right. So I think we all know enough about business and numbers to understand that to a certain extent. So don't be in the business of deluding yourself to think that, oh, well, this is going to work out better. Make sure that you plan for a, a poor case scenario and that you can still survive on that. If it works out better. Great. Then we get lots of extra cash flow and everything is wonderful. But know that it's, it's probably going to take a while. Just, I think, go in wide open and know that that's the case. And the other is a piece of advice that my friend Randy gave to me when about, you know, 12 to 18 months in, and I was really kind of down about the business and the numbers and where I was. He told me, said, you, Jude, forget about the numbers and go and find a way to be of service. And that was a really transformational thing for me because everybody I know who's really great and exceptional in this industry is because they, the way they care about people and what they bring to those conversations, not because they're particularly brilliant or anything along those lines. But it's because people are what matters. And it's easy to get lost, to lose sight of that when you're worried about your personal cash flow. After he said that, there was a local newspaper that had, you know, was going through some major changes and a bunch of people were being laid off. And I happened to know the money reporter there. So I just emailed her and said, look, we're doing pro bono plans for anybody that's been laid off. They have questions. They just want to talk to a professional. We'll be glad to do it. No charge, no expectation. And so because of that, about 10 people came to talk to us. And a couple of those were really credit counseling to helping file for bankruptcy kind of situation. A few others were kind of more, we're going to land on our feet, but we got these questions and concerns and we helped those through. And then a few of those more were people who were pretty close to retiring or thinking about retiring anyway. And so they had a significant portfolio in a 401k and other things, and they became paying clients after the pro bono piece and are still clients till this day. That lesson has always stuck with me. It's very easy early on, I think, to get down in the dumps about who's not calling or what's not happening. But if you can go and find a way to make things happen and be, you know, serve your community, 
get some positive energy going for yourself, get some practice for yourself, and good things will start to come out of that. Yeah, I think that, you know, that dynamic of just having a plan for the the income gap is is so crucial. You know, again, I, I've seen the uh, same thing you mentioned, like a lot of advisors that they probably would have been fine to make the jump, but they made the jump too quickly because they didn't have enough cash reserves because they, they kind of fell in love with this wonderful notion that it's not that capital intensive to like literally start the business. It's not like you're you're buying a restaurant where you've got to get a, a giant lease on a place and buy all the furniture and buy the oven equipment and all the rest where like you just need a, a pile of cash to buy all the things that you have to buy. But the actual hard dollar startup cost to start your own independent advisory firm is pretty modest. But you get in trouble because you still have to pay your personal bills while you're building your income. And, and it's the, it's the personal overhead that often buries the, the businesses because people just don't, they overestimate how quickly the revenue is going to come and they, and they underestimate how long it really takes and they didn't have enough cash to, to cover themselves in the meantime. And I mean, we've seen that over and over again for a lot of the other guests, even that we've had on the podcast. So, you know, we'll even, We'll link back to some of the prior episodes if people want to go see it in the show notes. So kitsis.com slash 22 for episode 22. But you, Ron Carson, when he came on, he talked about how I think six years in, he still hadn't broken $30,000 of gross dealer concessions. He hadn't broken 30,000 GDC after his first six years. And like they were living on hamburger helper and his spouse's nursing salary just to get by. And you know, now he's got a $4 billion AUM firm, but six years of not getting the 30,000 gross revenue. And and back then he was probably lucky to get a 50% payout on that. And, you know, Deb Weatherby had credit card debt after three years, just trying to get to cash flow break even. And Josh Brown cold called for 10 years in regional broker dealers before he transitioned to an advisory firm. And, and just, I feel like a lot of the time we lose that perspective that even some folks that have built some very successful firms and are, are earning some good dollars now, even the ones that do that well, it's hard for everyone up front. And I guess for some people that may scare you out of that. And and if that scares you that much, then it probably isn't a good leap for you. But for the rest who just kind of view it as a challenge to to work through, you can do that, but you got to have a plan for not the business startup costs, but how are you going to pay your bills or what can you do to bring your bills, your personal overhead down so that you can afford to make that a transition or, you know, are you married and in a relationship where your spouse can be the primary breadwinner for a while? And then maybe you can switch that role later, which I, I, you had said you guys went through as well for you and Karen. Yeah, sure. It's makes all the difference in the world to have that support. I mean, I could, there's no way I could have done this without Karen, not just, financially, but that, you know, she believed in me in a way that I didn't believe in myself. And, you know, to have a partner who is like that is, is really overwhelming and makes all the difference in the world. You know, so finding the right partner in life is nothing I can really help you with, but it's importantly a a tremendously important decision. And then to, you know, be able to celebrate the wins along the way is I think really important too. Because it's not going to be, you know, this this one day that everything is right and all the numbers are good. How do you celebrate that along the journey? Because it's going to take a while to get to where you want to go. And I'm, I'll say freely, I'm not very good at that. When I think about, you, know, you brought up GDC earlier, 
and that we would do, you know, we'll do 400 or so in GDC, if you will, in broker dealer terms this year, just in, in planning fees and how massive a number that would have been at my mass mutual office. There was nobody who was doing anywhere near that. And I, I can be like, well, it's just me and I just did it. And so it's no big deal, but I still have to sometimes be like, it's a really freaking big deal that, you know, we built that out of nothing and got it to this point. And I can know that there's more work to do, but still feel really proud of that and acknowledge that and, and say, yeah, I'm, you know, just give yourself that credit. That's so important. So as we get to the end here, you know, this is the financial advisor success podcast. And and so we, we like to talk about success, but one of the things I've, I've long observed through the podcast here is that just that, that whole word of success means very different things to different people. And, and I know you're probably acutely aware of that, having gone through George Kinder's training and, and we had George on for episode 15 as well. So I'm curious then from your perspective as someone who's built, I think, what most people would objectively call a very successful advisory business, how do you define success? Yeah, that's a tougher one. It's honestly like if we can, if I can be together with my family and we can live together in a place that we're content and safe and everybody's healthy, that's kind of enough. Now, I will openly admit to you that, especially if you ask my wife, like that's not every day for me. Very much a, a horizon more kind of a person. But you know, after going through what we went through with our daughter, you have to kind of always bring yourself back to that, that you know, that's, that's what's important. And whatever else is happening out here will be fine. That's, I really think that's what it's all about. Awesome. Well, I love the story. I love what, what you've shared here. So thank you very much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Michael. Thanks for having me and look forward to seeing all the great things you'll continue to do. I'm trying to keep it interesting. Well, thank you very much. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.